Submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, I just jumped up, sorry, I'm at 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 33. However, each of you should also love his wife as he loves himself, and as a wife must respect her husband. Chapter 6 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on this earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with a sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey, obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, in other words, when they're watching you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward each of you for whatever good they do, whatever they are, slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Lord, I just pray right now that with all of this information that you would bring some clarity, that you would allow me to speak truth, to, um, to just unpack the, really the mountain of information that's in these verses. But I just pray for these next few minutes that uh, you would move, that you would um, allow our hearts to receive uh, the word of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, so since um, the decision was made for me to be the lead pastor, I think almost daily I hear the question, so how's it going? All right? Some of you have asked me that question. So whether I'm here or visiting somebody, so how's it going? And the truth is, uh, the answer is almost always the same. It's exciting. I, I think the church is, um, is in a, an exciting stage. There's just a lot of really... Um, cool stuff going on, and people seem excited about it. It's, it's hard to miss. There's a movement of God. I feel like we're kind of in, in, in a season of God's favor, and there's just a lot of good stuff. It seemed like you're responding well to, to the vision that we have and to the teaching that we're, we're putting out there, so it's a good time. So usually the answer is it's good, but I also often say, well, it feels like it might just be a honeymoon, like I'm pretty new in the position, and there's kind of a honeymoon phase, so I wonder if today as I teach Ephesians, <laughs> if the honeymoon is over. Because the truth is, this passage of Scripture has a tendency to ruffle people up, to uh, get people on the edge of their seat. Uh, it's, it's a tough passage of Scripture. But here's what I want to say. This is the Word of God. And I'm convinced more than ever that this is the inspired Word of God, and it's truth. And so as I teach through today, my encouragement to you is wrestle with God and not with me. <laughs> Please. Because there's going to be things in here that are hard for us to hear. And I, did, I, I honestly, so we, we saw last week that, that we're commanded to find out what pleases the Lord and, and do it. So if there's things I say that, that you don't necessarily agree with, go back and do your due diligence. Read and study the Word of God and, and come to that place where you can say, well, this is what the Word of God says. And when you, when you determine what the Word of God says, then my encouragement to you is then do what the Word of God says because it's the Word of God. 
So I debated all week, do I talk about this big of a section of Ephesians? And, and the truth is what I'd like to do in the, in the future is I'd like to come back and teach this section as a whole series because really there's, there's a lot in here for us to unpack and it could easily be a five or six week series. But, but the reason I want to teach it this way today is because what we need to understand is from verse 15 all the way through that middle part of, of chapter 6 is really one section in the original letter. It's, it's one section and it's really... Uh, a description, if you will, everything that I read of verse 15. It's, it's how to live into verse 15. So look at verse 15. It says, be very careful then how you live. Remember, I've talked about this quite a bit, but the word live also is walk. Be careful how you walk. Be careful how you journey. Be careful how you live. Not as wise, but as, or not as unwise, but as wise. Some people, as you study Ephesians, call this section of Paul's letter, um, Paul's house rules. Think about that for a minute. These are the rules of the house, right? These are, are the rules put in place to help there to be some sense of order and not chaos. I was talking to Jordan Crawford in a meeting this week. We were, we were talking about upcoming sermon series, and, and uh, he said, I went over, to, or I, some people came over to Joel's house, and we were getting ready to play a board game. And Joel sort of sat up and he said, hey, everybody, let me just tell you, these are the house rules for the game today. Now, why was he doing that? He was doing it so that they would all be on the same page, so that they could play this board game with a sense of order. Everybody gets on the same page. Everybody's doing things the same way. The truth of the matter is most of us, well, maybe not most of us, I'm just lumping you in because it's me, don't particularly like rules. But the truth is, rules are there for a reason. Rules are necessary for society. Rules are necessary for order. Rules are necessary to keep us from, from having chaos in our lives. And these are the house rules. How we are to respond to one another. How we are to get along with one another. The truth is, this is what it looks like to live as wise and not unwise. This is what it looks like to be careful how we live. To be careful how we walk. And, it's, and verse 15 is the, the what, verse 18 is the how. So look at verse 18. It says, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. I can't say that word today. Thank you. Everybody helps me out. Debauchery. Uh, instead, be filled with the Spirit. I love what John said, and I didn't know he was going to say that, but how can we be hungry for God if we're full of something else? That's a great question to ask, right? Like, and really, that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, don't get drunk on anything other than the Spirit of God. Don't, don't literally get drunk, but don't, don't go to anything to fill yourself up other than the Spirit of God. Be filled with the Spirit of God. So what I want you to hear first and foremost is, is you cannot, you cannot live into the precepts, the commands, the, the directives of Ephesians or anything else in Scripture without being filled with the Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit that enables, empowers, and allows us to live this out. So you can't just do this on your own. You can't just make it happen. So something else I want you to kind of see. If you're a person that writes in your Bible, you may want to write this in the margin. But, but verse, verses 18, 19, 20, and 21. So 18 through 21 in the original agent is one run-on sentence. Now, when they, when they did the translation, they broke it up because it was easier to read. But, but it's important to know that because what you have there is, is verses 19, 20, 21 are really a description of what it looks like when we are filled with the Spirit. Not drunk on wine, but filled with the Spirit. And then he's describing what being filled with the Spirit looks like. And so there's, there's two outcomes, if you will, or two results of being filled with the Spirit. And the, the first is that we become worshipers. 
We become worshipers. And I love this because he shows this, this picture of worship flowing in two different directions. So if you look at verse 19, it says, Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, songs of the Spirit. And, and think about it. It says, speaking to one another. So there is this direction of worship that is, is, as we are worshipers and we worship, our worship goes out and it, and it has an effect on other people. I love it. I don't know if it was last week or two weeks ago when Norflet talked about singing hymns over your children and praises over your children and over your, your wife or over your husband. There's this ability for us as worshipers, for our ability to worship, to, to spill over and to be, bring about worship in other people. So that's verse 19. But if you look at verse 20, it seems more about an inner thing going on. So it says, And then sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember this. Worship is not singing. Worship can be, or singing can be an expression of our worship. But we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Worship is this inner state of being. It's this, it's this place where we are in our inner spirit. It's, it's all of that. So you can sing and not worship. You can come here, you can sing the songs, you can enjoy the music and not be worshiped. Worshiping is, is having this inner disposition of knowing who God is and all God has done and just expressing that back to God, whether it's in song, whether it's in words, whether it's in attitude, whether it's just in your disposition. So, so when it says to be a worshiper, he's not saying that you have to walk around always singing. That's not what this is about. As a matter of fact, one of the things that, that Norflet taught me as soon as he got here, one of the first sermons he preached, is it's not whether or not you can sing, it's whether or not you have a song, right? It's whether or not there is a song in you. So, verses 18 through 21 could be summarized like this. That we are to be filled with the Spirit. We are to be worshipers. And then if you look at verse 21, and we are to submit to one another. Now, here's the, the, the irony. Here's, here's what I think is fascinating. Paul is connecting our spiritual fullness and our being worshipers to being willing to submit to one another. They're absolutely connected. What he's saying is when you are full of the Spirit, when you have a, a posture of worship, it creates a position in you to be willing to risk submitting to people because you're getting what you need from God because God is giving you enough security and, and who he is and, and his sovereignty that you can actually submit to someone even if it's a difficult thing to do. Even if you think to yourself, well, they haven't shown themselves worthy of my submitting. But that's not really part of the scripture, is it? It's not saying, there's no qualifiers. What it's saying is submit to one another, but that submission is, is rooted in being filled with the Spirit and being worshipers of God. Now, I'm going to do something that I don't think I've ever done before, pretty unconventional. I'm going to teach from the last of the house rules back up, and it's not because I'm avoiding the husband and wife passage. <laughs> Maybe just a little. <laughs> Might be. No, it's not, because I want to end with the husband and wife. So we're actually going to start at the, at the end of six and move our way back up, and um, just bear with me in, in doing it this way. It's mainly so that we can end with the husband and wives. So, it starts with verse 5 of chapter 6. His slaves, obey your earthly masters, respect and fear with sincere hearts, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you. I love that. Don't just do what they want you to do when they're watching you, but do it all the times as slaves to Christ. Serve wholeheartedly as, as if you were serving the Lord. We're going to see this throughout this passage. There's this picture of doing what you do as if you're serving the Lord. We're going to see that throughout, you know, in being children and, and being parents and and husbands and wives. So here's, here's a quick point. And just make sure you know this. 
Paul is addressing the culture of the day, and he is not endorsing slavery. And the Bible does not endorse slavery. And even as we understand American history and slavery, none of that was ever okay. It was all sin. It was all sin. So when we see the language like that, we have to be careful to think, well, well how did slavery exist? But, but here's the deal. There would be households that had means. There would be households where, where there was wealth within that household. And, and people would come, and it, they wouldn't all be people of, uh, who, were, who were considered um, um, oppressed or anything, but, but people would come, could have even been distant relatives, and they would say, I will serve in your home if you will give my family a place to live. They would become what's called indentured servants, and they would sign a contract, and their, their wages would be that they would live under the rule of the household. They would actually get their food from them. They would, they would get all, so they were indentured servants for a period of time. But you know what? God knew that people would abuse that system. And so what he did is he put into the law a system that said every seven years, all slaves and all servants are be to, set, to be set free. He also did the same thing with debt, but that's a whole other sermon sometime. So, so what we see in Scripture is that, that God wasn't endorsing slavery. As a matter of fact, he was saying you've got to set people free. Now, they could re-ante up, right? They could say, thank you for my freedom. I like working here. I like being under this household. I like the way you take care of us. I like what's going on. And so if they knew they had to be set free every seven years, that would force the master to be better masters, right? So all that to say, the Bible does not endorse slavery. And, and, and we just need to know that. So how do we make this verse applicable to you and I? Well, if you just take the word master and make it bosses, and if you just take the word slaves and make it employees, it reads perfectly. And so what it's saying is, employees, obey your bosses. Do what your bosses ask you to do, even if your bosses aren't watching you. Actually, work in your workplace as if your boss is Jesus. As if you're working for Jesus, that's the type of work ethic you need to have. And do that, and you will win favor with your boss, and you will win favor with God, is what it's actually saying. So there's a, there's a work ethic that he's calling us to. And what I think is fascinating is he's not saying, do this if you have a great boss. He's saying, do this as if you're working for Jesus himself. And just so you know, bosses, you're not off the hook. So if you are a boss, if you are an employer, what it's saying is, Treat your people with respect. Actually, what it says is treat them as equals because God doesn't show any favoritism. Look at the passage. That's what it says. Treat them with, without favoritism and, and, and treat them as if they were equal to you. But here's what you need to know. The fuel, the ability to live into this directive is that we be filled with the Spirit, that we be worshipers. Only then are we going to be able to submit to one another. So these are the house rules for bosses, house rules for employees, house rules for, for that. But now if you keep looking, go to, go to verse 1 of chapter 6. Now we have the house rules for, for children and parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on earth. Now, I would love to speak to, I should have made the Roots kids actually stay in here for the whole service. Hey, somebody go get them. No, I'm just kidding. But the, I, I want to talk to the young people, but I want to tell you that, that this passage still applies to us if your parents are still your parents, and if they're still alive especially. I still have to ask myself, what does it look like for me to honor, not so much obey, my parents don't tell me what to do much anymore, but I still have to honor my mom and dad, right? So, the, so this could apply to you regardless of your age, but, but let me speak to the younger people specifically. What does this mean? What does it mean to honor your parents? 
And I want to just kind of touch on that, like, in having you think about it this way. We, we honor somebody by what we say about them. We honor somebody by what we say to them, right? So, so, so what we, how we actually serve. And we also honor somebody by the way we submit to what they're asking us to do. So in other words, words like, my parents are so out of touch. My parents are such jerks. My parents have no idea about reality. All of those words are dishonoring words. So how you speak to your friends about your parents is part of how you dishonor them. If you speak negatively about your parents, if you speak in a way that is demeaning to your parents. Now, how you speak to them can also be pretty dishonoring. So when you speak to your parents with anger, with rage, with disdain, when you roll your eyes, when you stop listening to them, when you just tune them out, those are all dishonoring to your parents. And when you disregard what your parents have asked you to do is another way to dishonor them. So there is this picture of obedience. And don't miss this. What the passage is saying is, if you want things to go well for you, listen to your parents and obey them. So there's a blessing that comes with obedience, which means there's a curse that comes with disobedience. And maybe we don't like the word curse, but let's just put it this way. If you want things to go bad for you, then don't do what your parents have asked you to do. There's a promise in this, that God will bless you if you honor your mother and father, if you listen to your mother and father, if you do what they ask you to do. Look at uh, this verse 6-4, because it says there, now it's, now it's on us as parents. How are we to respond? It says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I just want you to know, moms, you're not off the hook. You can very easily say, mothers and fathers, do not exasperate your children. But here's the deal. If you're going to raise your kids, and you're going to do it in a God-honoring way, you are going to have to discipline them at times. You are going to have to have hard conversations with them. This passage isn't saying that your kids should never be exasperated. What it's saying is you should not be the catalyst for their exasperation. As a matter of fact, you don't have to be because they're going to get there all on their own. Right? Right? I mean, they're going to get frustrated. They're going to get exasperated. What it's saying is, do not fuel that. Do not be the catalyst. So this is really, this is a, uh, this is a, this is a whole sermon in itself. How do we parent our kids? And, and here's what I want you to know. You cannot, you cannot rage over your kids. You cannot discipline your kids in a fit of anger or rage, or you will exasperate them. You cannot nag your kids on their backs all the time, never good enough. And here's the thing that I hear that breaks my heart the most. You cannot speak words that are negative and demeaning over your kids. You are so whatever. You are so lazy. You are so unmotivated. Those words crush the spirit of your children. And they will not rise up. So what it's saying is, don't speak those words over them. Speak words of encouragement. Speak words about, this isn't about being wishy-washy. This isn't about not, not having discipline in your home. This is about being careful how you use your words. Here's the litmus test. Anytime you are inter- interacting with your children, are you doing it with the fruit of the Spirit? What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Ask yourself, am I all of those things as I discipline my kids? Because you can be firm, you can be honest, you can, you can hand out discipline, and you can do it while having joy, you can do it while having self-control. 
And what happens is, is we flare up, we rage on our kids, we yell at our kids to stop yelling. It doesn't work very well. I remember a, a friend of mine once said to me, and he was a little bit older than me, and he said, Doug, whenever you yell at your kids, it's just because you're too lazy to do the hard work. So every time I've yelled at my kids since then, I'm like getting that voice out of my ear. Too lazy to do the hard work. And he's right. Stopping and thinking through what we're going to do, disciplining our kids with this, this sense of peace and this sense of gentleness is a pretty hard thing to do because, honestly, sometimes they exacerbate us, right? Sometimes they do things that push our buttons. But can you step away long enough to get yourself in the right place? In order to do this, you have to be filled with the Spirit. You have to be a worshiper of God. So we have house rules for work. We have house rules for children, house rules for parents. And now, house rules for marriage. And here's what frustrates me the most. If you look at verses 22 through 33, we have this pretty known passage. A lot of people would, would know this as being per, per, pretty familiar. But what I've experienced is that it usually goes too far one way or too far the other way. In other words, there's, there's people who are extremely conservative, come out of a male-dominated stance, and, and they use these verses as a way of oppressing and, and being domineering, and, and they give little attention to the Jesus way of leadership. They give little attention to the, to the, the call for us to serve in a particular way. So it's a, it's a verse that in, over the history and sometimes in some settings still is used as a way of oppressing or, or, or lording over women. Paul is clearly, clearly calling men and women in this passage to submit to one another and then explaining, and don't miss this, that that submission looks differently for the man and for the woman. There's different roles that we are to play, and we're going to unpack that in just a minute. I am frustrated with that male-dominated stance, but I am just as frustrated with the hyper-feminist take on these verses, where words like head in verse 23 or leader and reference to the husband over the wife are just watered down and kind of neglected or in some cases completely ignored. It's in there and we have to give voice to it and we have to give attention to it. Both of these positions miss the fact that what Paul is writing is a beautiful invitation for an amazing marriage. It isn't to oppress anyone. It's God's house rules for a great marriage. truth of the matter is we are not good at this. Marriage in the church is in crisis. Marriage in our society is in crisis. Marriages in this room are in crisis and it's because we don't understand the house rules. And so Paul is writing this beautiful description of this dance between a husband and wife where the, the Holy Spirit is the music and they come together and they learn to, to function together in a way that's a it's just got beautiful rhythm. It's nothing oppressive about this passage. So he says to the husbands and wives, look at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he writes to the wives in verse 22, and he says, Wives, submit to your husband as your own husbands is to the Lord, for the husband is the head of of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Then he says to the husbands in verse 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Here's the reality of the passage. Husbands are called to lead. Whether you like it or don't like it, it is crystal clear in the passage that husbands are called to be the head of their household. And I know it's not popular, and I know it may not even be politically correct to say this, but it's in there. And I know that society may buck against it, and some people may already be planning their exit strategy from grace because I said it out loud, but, but it's in there. Husbands need to take responsibility and be the head of their house, and they need to take that responsibility seriously, and wives, you need to let your husbands lead. And we're going to sink into this a little bit more, but, but the reason this is unsettling for some of you is because you don't understand what Jesus-centered leadership looks like. This is not about men making all the decisions. This is not about men demanding their own way. This is not about men lording over the people in their home, their wives, their kids. This is not about demanding something from their wife. And it's never about pulling out this passage of scripture as a trump card to dominate your home. Can I tell you, if you ever do that, you've already lost the battle. The role, the role of the man here is to lead. And what that means is you need to lead spiritually. That you need to take your walk with Jesus absolutely serious. That you need to chase after God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. That you have to guard your own heart at any cost, knowing that out of my heart flows all of the life. And God has entrusted me to bring life into my home, to bring life into my relationship with my wife. And so you have to be Dog is determined to chase after God and to guard your own heart. You have to lead spiritually. You have to grow as a follower of Christ. You have to more and more learn how high and deep and wide and long is the love of God. And, and in knowing that, become a better and better husband. The more you know the love of God, the better lover of people you'll become, the better husband you'll become, the better father you'll become. You have to lead spiritually. You've got to love unconditionally. The hardest part of this passage, I think, is men love your wives the way Christ loved the church. You know, I've never done that. I want to be a good husband, and I think I pray almost every day, Lord, help me to love Meg the way you love the church. I have failed every day. I have failed every day, but I want to learn more and more and more how to love my wife the way Christ loved the church. This is a high and hard calling for the men. And men, if you start to love your wife the way Christ loved the church, maybe your wife will submit to your leadership just a little bit more. So as we grow, so as we grow, something happens within our home. And I want to do something. Um, I'm going to invite Meg and Shanae and Norflet to come up, and we're going to just talk about the wives side of this. And here's the honest truth. Um, I think you have before you two women um, who can share what it looks like to live into submission in the home, to do it in a way that's Christ-honoring. And um, it might be easier to hear it uh, from women who are trying to live it than for me uh, to speak over. So it's easier for me to challenge the men, and I'm going to let Shanae and Meg uh, be the words of challenge to you guys. So welcome, Shanae and Meg and Norflet. We're so far away. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, this is my beautiful and lovely wife, Meg. Thank you. 
Nerflet serves as pastor of adult spiritual formation or discipleship. Shanae helps run the prayer ministry here at Grace. Been on staff here for a while, so bless them as well. <laughs> so I think what I'd like to start with, Meg and Shanae, is I'd love for the two of you each to kind of take a shot at um, what's clear to me is you are both uh, strong women. You're both leaders. God has gifted you with leadership gifts. Um, how, how have you learned to live into this in your own journey? How, how have you learned to submit to me? How have you learned to submit to Northwood? I'd love to hear that. I gotta get comfortable for this one. So Shanae, why don't you start? <laughs> She's getting on the edge of her seat. Are these I don't know if I should run or how have you learned it? So I've got my husband here and my boss here. And my boss here and my boss here. So um, you know, I, I think what you said was really good. You said, you know, Meg is strong and Shanae is strong. And I think sometimes in the definition of submission, we take strength away. Right. And so I believe my personality is God-given. I For believe sure. my husband is God-given. I believe my role, whatever role he has for me, is God-given. And so, um, so it's not about personality. It's more about being spirit-led. It's more about being willing to be led, which is what Christ asks us all to do. I don't know. Did you turn them on? Oh. Uh, we should all take a moment okay. and turn on our mics. Is it? Is it? If. This is working now. Oh, okay. <laughs> <You got> it. <laughs> um, well, f I think first of all, I want to say is it, it's been a journey. We've been married 28 years, so it's you know been definitely been a learning process for it for us. It hasn't always been easy. <laughs> Maybe you should talk about how I submit <laughs> from your perspective. Um, and, you know, I, be I became a Christ follower when I was 30, at which point we had been married for eight years, and we had made a mess of things, you know, the two of us before that. So it was actually 10 or 11 years before I ever even heard. I'd been married for 10 or 11 years before I even heard the verse in Ephesians, you know, about uh, submitting to our, our husbands. So... But at the time, when I first heard of it, I was learning about God's ways, and I definitely was discovering that in every area of my life, um, God's ways were better than my ways. Um, so what I have found for myself is that when I'm in a good place with God, when mm -hmm. I'm being honest with God about myself and I'm experiencing God speaking to my heart, um, it's very, it's very easy for me to respect Doug because that is God's order for me, you know, as his wife. And also the fact that we have grown, you know, our marriage has, we've, we've gained a lot of ground. <laughs> yes, um, when we talked know. about this earlier, she said, it's not that you're less annoying, you just annoy me less. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm not sure that's a compliment, but... That's a testament to God. Yeah, we'll so. just give God credit for that. No credit for Doug, but... Um, but also, I, I know that Doug is seeking God's heart. And as long as Doug is seeking God's heart, I know I'm in a safe place to be able to, to be under his leadership. So... Talk for a minute. You, um, I just think it's worth hearing because I think it's a lot of people's story. Um, 
you both shared a little bit of your almost, you didn't use the word vows of, of when you were younger, but Meg, why don't you talk for a minute about some of the decisions you made as a young girl, and then you do the same, and then how, how that, you had to learn to live into that as, as this verse became part of living out your marriage. Yeah, uh, so I grew up in a home. Uh, my dad was a, a good dad in many ways. Uh, he was a my way or the highway kind of dad, and that was, you know, ruled our home with an iron fist. And as a young person, I, you know, consciously or unconsciously made a decision that I would never again live in a home where I was pushed around. So that was my posture coming into this marriage with Doug and not being a Christ follower. So, you know, it was kind of like this all the time in our marriage. Plus, we were both, you know, the youngest of large families and I was waiting for him to serve me and he was waiting for me to serve him, yeah. which this was just <laughs> a recipe for, for trouble. But um, I thought the, the way that I could be safe was not to let anyone dominate me or push me around or, or lead me. I was going to lead myself and take care of myself. But again, it just goes back to just that journey of, you know, as Jesus uh, began restoring our, our lives and began restoring our marriage, um, I just, it, it was really, it's, it was a trust, it was a trust in God sure. and, and, and. God first. Right, it was became God first, like where, where I was at with God, wherever I was at with God, wherever Doug is at with God, I felt confident in the order he had set up. Right, Shanae? Yeah, um, so in, in our, we've been married 21, almost 21 years in August, and for me, I didn't have a healthy model of what a, a godly marriage looked like. My grandmother was a widow, my mom was a widow at 30, and so I'm 12 years old growing up in a household without a dad, and Flett didn't have healthy models either. And uh, you know, one of our spiritual mentors says this all the time, you get married for an ideal, it turns into an ordeal. <laughs> and now you want a new deal because you think you got a raw deal. And, um, Somebody write that down, I'm gonna have to use that I later. thought. I thought, man, I got a raw deal here. So that first, you know, year of marriage was the opposite of heaven. And, um, <laughs> and so around that third or fourth year, you know, of just struggling through this, you know, Norflet came to me and he said, you know, we're taking the D word out of our vocabulary. We will never divorce. And I thought, oh, great. So the only way out of this is for one of us to die. <laughs> um, the other D word. Yeah, the, right. This the is other, not funny. The other D word. I, I replaced divorce with die, right? Um, the other D word. And I can remember having time alone with the Lord and, you know, just saying, God, this is so miserable. Something has got to change. And I just felt like the Holy Spirit said, good, then you change. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, you know, the reality is I got so desperate and so sick of being miserable, I took my eyes off Norflat and I put my eyes um, on the Lord and said, how do I live into um, being a godly wife? And earlier you said, you know, how did you learn to do this? And I, I, I don't think I've learned, I think I'm learning. Yeah, for sure. Um, this morning, for example, you know, um, 
it was raining pretty badly and North Platte pulled out the car and he went to get the umbrella. And I'm so happy because, you know, for black women, when it rains, your hair does stuff. And I just did my hair. And so he came on the porch and I was so concerned about making sure that he was holding the umbrella right so that I didn't get my hair wet that I almost misstepped. And I just felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, see, just walk and, and, and walk and be sure that this covering I've given you is taking huh. care of what you need. And, mm. That's so. cool. So, yeah. so Shanae, I want to come back to you in a moment, but Flett, why don't you talk for a minute? Here's, here's the reality of the passage. It really does say, submit to one another. So I am called to submit I'm called to lead, and at the same time, I'm called to submit. And that's a hard thing for us to, to put those two things together. The truth is, that's how I'm called to lead in this church as well. That's, that's godly leadership. There's submission and leadership both. But how have you learned to submit to Shanae? Yeah. She asked me to ask that question, by the way. <laughs> that's right. That, that's where that money went. It's okay. No. <laughs> well, you know, just the simple fact that I am not always right, right? So, <laughs> so you know, just an example, that just last week, you know, um, one of the kids was out in the car and they did something I told them not to do the, ne- the day before, and I'm just upset. I come out the house, I'm like, why did you do that? And I'm, you know, yelling, and, um, and I run back in the house saying, okay, you know what, I think I'm being good because I'm gonna leave the situation and not be any more angry. And I go in the house, and then here comes Shanae, and after me, is like, what are you doing? I'm like, I've got a right to be upset. Can you hear, did you hear yourself? And so it's saying, you know, there's another perspective that I've got to hear. Amen. And um, even with making decisions, because, you know, you, some, you just, well, I have my vantage point, and so, it, but in order for this to work right, I've got to be able to hear what she sees. And um, so that, you know, you know, I blew it last week. And, you know, she helped me know that I blew it. Right. So a big so, part of it is, is valuing the voice in our home yeah. that's also walking with Jesus. It's part of who the Holy Spirit uses yeah. to correct, to yeah. guide, to sometimes help us when we need, because Lord knows we need help. Yeah. At least the two of us do. I don't right. know about the rest, know of, the rest of you guys. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as you were uh, preaching, uh, uh, verse 26 says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Yeah. And he says that he gave, him up, he, he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. And this, this, this picture that, you know, husbands, we get a chance to cleanse our wives with our words. Yeah. That's cool. And the, the opposite is also true, that we can dirty them up with our words. So I don't know. I was just and like, our behaviors. Wow. Yeah. And our behaviors. So um, I think we have to give voice to one thing in the room because there's some of you who are sitting in this um, uncomfortableness. And Shanae, I'm going to ask a question of you. But what do you say to the woman whose husband isn't walking with the Lord who still has to wrestle with this passage of Scripture because it's in there? So. Yeah. I think I say, you know, I... I see everything through the filter of prayer, and prayer is such a powerful tool in shaping our family and shaping me and shaping my husband. And, 
you know, I'm reminded, my mother reminded me yesterday actually of Paul's um, direction to Timothy. And he says, guard the deposit that's in you. And uh, I think in marriage, we have to guard the deposit as wives of what God has put in us, this love, this goodness, this opportunity to be in his presence, to be heard by God and powerfully pray for our husbands, powerfully, powerfully pray for our families and then trust that God's going to intervene and, uh, and live in a way that doesn't total, totally cancel out everything that we prayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you told a story um, when we talked Friday about the person with the last name of Wigglesworth, <laughs> who I've never heard of, which Smith is a great Wigglesworth. name. Wigglesworth. You want yeah. to tell that story real quick? Because I just think it's a powerful story. I think there's hope in the story. So I just want you to hear the yeah. Cliff Note version of this story. Yeah, and you can get the full version. Just Google Smith Wigglesworth. But... Smith Wigglesworth. Write that down. Real name. Real person, <laughs> real name in England years ago. Like, uh... But, you know, he's in history, in a, in a certain um, demographic of people, you know, he's had a powerful ministry. And he tells his testimony, and his testimony was that his wife was a believer long before he ever was. And he was so opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ that he would say to her, if you go to church, or if you go to that tent meeting or that revival meeting, you are not getting back in this house, so make your choice. And she would make the choice to go and to worship and hear God's word. And so she would be locked out. She would sleep outside. She would sleep on the porch. And he would open the door and say, you know, have you had enough or whatever? And um, she would say, good morning, Smith. What would you like for breakfast? And she would go in and uh, make him breakfast and love him and serve him. And he eventually not only gave his life to the Lord, but pursued God's calling and ministry and just really revolutionized the world in some ways. Yeah, that's a pretty powerful story. So um, there's a lot here for us to wrestle with. Uh, Shanae, I'm going to ask uh, that you pray for the marriages in this room. Yeah. And uh, we have marriages um, all over the board from yeah. struggling to doing well. But if you yeah. just pray for them as a way of transition, that would be yeah. great. Do you guys hold hands with me? Father, marriage is your plan, and it's your design to show how much you love us, how much you sent your son, and how we're to respond to him. And God, I pray for every marriage under the sound of my voice. God, that you would be a healer, that you would step into those places where there's been pain, where there's been discontentment, where there's been discouragement. And I pray, God, that you would breathe hope. God, I pray that you, by only the way that you can, would move in divine forgiveness in the hearts of husbands for wives and in the hearts of wives for husbands. And Father, I pray that you would just do what only you can do, raise dead marriages today, God. I pray that you would breathe new hope and new life into them. And God, I I take authority over the plan of the enemy to make the church look just like the world. And God, I just decree over marriages that they shall live and not die and declare the goodness of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank them. Thank you.
So we're going to transition, Norfolk's going to transition us to a chance for communion to continue to worship. So uh, I just encourage you as uh, we move forward. Amen. Wasn't that good stuff? Well, you know, uh, communion is one of those powerful, powerful moments. And uh, even if, you know, you're struggling in marriage or struggling in relationship, and we come.